hello and welcome to the Food Freedom Podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Food Freedom Coach, and I'm really excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I'm really excited to have another guest on the podcast and today I'm speaking to Carolina Mountford. Now Carolina is a mental health advocate, speaker and writer. So she talks in schools and to church groups and other organisations about mental health, eating disorders, body image and depression. Now this is a really great interview today because Carolina is someone who has struggled quite severely at times with disordered eating behaviours and from a very young age. So Carolina has shared really openly about these experiences and has talked about her recovery journey and the bumps in the road for dealing with this, including being turned away from treatment when she was desperate to try and seek help, in terms of understanding trauma, in terms of understanding the deeper roots of the problem, and how she has worked to genuinely come to a place where she's found freedom with food and her body. So I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Carolina is an incredibly inspiring and passionate person and gives such encouraging messages. Hope you enjoy. Hi there, Carolina, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Good morning, Harriet, and thank you so much for having me. Lovely to sort of be here with you virtually. (laughs) <laughs> Fantastic. So, um, Carolina, could you tell us all a bit more about who you are and what you do? Yes, of course. So, I'm Carolina. I'm a wife of one, mum of two, and I'm a mental health advocate. I sort of speak to groups of children in schools, and actually, I do sometimes speak to the staff. Yeah, and I sometimes speak to church groups, and I talk about mental health, eating disorders, body image, trauma, depression, sort of a number of issues that are sort of relevant to that particular group. So Carolina, so I know one of the reasons um, that I've got you on the podcast today is because I know you've got a really interesting story to tell and you've (laughs) overcome a lot of, you know, issues with eating and body image. So can you sort of tell me a bit about kind of, you know, when that all started and when you first had issues with food and your body? Yes. So I was already very, I was quite young, I would think and I was getting teased and sort of called names at school and which I found difficult but I think I thought that happens to everyone I don't know and I'd lived with it for quite a while and then one day I remember I was at home and we were sitting down for a meal and my mother sort of announced that she was putting me on a diet and I thought oh that feels sort of strange but I felt, oh, well, if, if the children at school are saying these things to me, and then my mother is putting my dad, then, then those things therefore must be true. But I was only nine, and I, just, and I remember thinking that was the first time I sort of consciously recall feeling that there was something innately wrong with me and with how I was and how I looked. Mm, it's so sad isn't it? I think it's such a young age isn't it to be kind of you know to be made aware of, of your body and to be and also to be put on a diet and so was your mother's decision then as well was it because as well did, was she aware that you'd been being teased or was it sort of in relation to that I don't think so because I don't remember really sort of talking to her about it at the time and we had 
or maybe she did know. I mean, we had an amazing nanny who adored me. And it's, I don't remember, but it's possible I said something to the nanny and then she told my mother. But I certainly don't remember that. But what I do know is that my mother values, even to this day, appearances. And, you know, a conversation about anyone rarely happens without her mentioning someone's appearance. And that's always been the way. And, you know, growing up, it was very much presenting this sort of perfect front to the outside world. And, And that was as much emotionally and psychologically as well as physically. Yeah, appearances were just, and they still are to her, very, very important. Mm. Yeah, and so I, th- I think that I, I, I felt I'm not meeting up to her standards, I suppose, when I was, you know, when she put me on that diet. I wasn't, I didn't look like the perfect little girl that, that I think maybe she was hoping for. Mm. Well, it sounds so tough, doesn't it? Because it sounds as well that, that kind of perfection almost and what she was expecting it wasn't as well just how you looked it was kind of like the whole package wasn't it really about you know how you presented yourself to the world absolutely Um, and so and what did that what did the diet look like you know do you you have any memories of kind of how you're eating sort of change when you're on the diet I have more memories of how I felt I think than the diet itself I think I may be mistaken but I think she just she'd cut out carbs I remember something about rice on the plate or not being on the plate. And that was her way of saying, no, 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 you can't have that because you're on a diet. So I think she even you know, then started cutting out food groups entirely. I was never conscious of her modeling bad eating habits. And I know at the time, I remember that she, I mean, she had, she did ex- exercise classes at home you know, I mean, but people do it now, so do, you know, Pilates or, you know, or whatever it is. So, and at the time I didn't think it odd, but I did think it odd that I was being put on a diet. And that was what felt very strange and, and alien and uncomfortable. But it also set in me that, that being slightly overweight, which I probably was, but that it wasn't okay. And that's, that's kind of, that was the beginning, I think, of, of everything. Sure. Like it, it's so sad, isn't it? I guess in a way that just from that such a young age, at the age of nine, that you became so acutely conscious of your body. Because, you know, I guess, you know, for a lot of nine year olds, hopefully they might be kind of just very body neutral and just not even had a thought about their body. Absolutely. Or... Yeah. Yeah. It's a very young age, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, and I understand as well, Carolina, that you, you moved around a lot as a child and that was quite challenging for you. Is that right? Yeah, we did. We did move a lot. By the time I was 13, I had lived in five different countries and been to eight different schools, you know, sort of across the Atlantic every few years. And actually, even in one of those moves, we landed in a country where I didn't even speak the language and I was put into a local school. It wasn't as we waited for a school, for a school place to become available at the British school, which is generally the sort of school I, I was at, at wherever we lived. But invariably, when we first arrived in a the country, there was not always a place available. So whilst we waited, I was put into the, you know, the local, in this case, a Dutch school in Holland. I didn't even speak Dutch. My father was Dutch. So I, I recognised a few words, but I could not communicate when we first arrived. And yeah, so that's, you know, I look at my son now, you know, my eldest, and I think, gosh, by the time I was your age, all this had happened. And, you know, children are adaptable. Children do adjust reasonably well to change in general. But I think that was a little excessive. <laughs> mm, 
yeah and it's sure well, it must have just been so hard to just ever feel that kind of security in your friendships or Absolutely. you know yeah mm. so yeah. and what happened as well sort of with your relationship with food and your body kind of when all of that was going on I I just began, I was certainly sort of more towards the the latter part of of all those moves around I noticed I did start to feel very guilty when I was eating or if I was eating around other people I thought people were always looking at my plate and what I had on it and I just became very uncomfortable in my own body and then as you know the teenage years came I deliberately started dieting more and but again what strikes me more from my memory is the emotional side of it is how much I disliked myself mm. and how insecure I became. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I was certainly sort of in you know, 11, 12, 13. I remember being very body conscious, not in a good way. And just, yeah, that sort of that self loathing, that self hatred was beginning to grow quite noticeably. Yeah, and just generally feeling very uncomfortable around food and thinking everyone's watching me. Yeah, and I think then I sort of started being a bit more deliberate about my food choices and started restricting. Yeah, because I think all those, you know, all those moves are deeply, as you said, you know, they are deeply unsettling. And mm. um, you can't form long and trusted friendships with people. And, you know, I'd arrive in a country and think, or in a school, I think, well, I don't know how long I'm going to be here for. So after, you know, doing that a few times, you sort of stop making the effort. Yeah, um, it's just it's just too exhausting starting all over again every, you know, two years or so. And yeah, you sort of give up a bit on, mm. on the whole sort of social side. And of course, that then has effects on the relationships and and people therefore don't make an, an effort with you. And and then you get into this spiral of nobody likes me. And then you think it's because of what I look like. And, and, and you just it all becomes so sort of distorted and horribly twisted. Yeah, I mean, there were, I have, you know, I, have, I don't, it wasn't all bad there, you know, as a consequence of all those moves, I have learned so much and I have, I have gained a lot as well as having lost a lot. But, you know, for all that I gained, you know, a love of languages and culture and, you know, the wider world, it came at a, a very heavy price. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that because I think as well it, it just highlights something that I think many people will relate to, you know, particularly around our sort of relationships and feeling connected and secure and loved and accepted. And, you know, particularly I think at that age, it's so crucial, isn't it? You know, we really want to feel kind of liked and part of a group and, and that we have yeah. those solid friendships. And, you know, and when we don't have those things, sometimes, you know, we can be so vulnerable to kind of, you know, the body image and the, and the food stuff kind of creeping in. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And they're, 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 it's, it's just a really important time in yeah in development and growth and and in you know emotionally and and psychologically and you know we are it's an age where you know youngsters are very vulnerable to external pressures and stresses that will upset that sort of that process yeah it's, yeah yeah so can you say a little bit more about your family environment yeah sure so as i said you know appearances were very important to my mother and but it wasn't just appearances and, and growing up I never felt good enough I didn't feel I was thin enough or clever enough 
my older brothers were considerably brighter than I was. And and I was also, I was, they were comparing me with them a lot and also with, you know, other friends of mine. And you know, they very much said, well, why can't you be more like, you know, your brother or your friend or whoever it is? They, they just, you know, picked a name. And, but, and that was very difficult for me. I can sort of, you know, no matter how hard I tried, nothing was ever quite up to scratch for them. But for me, over and above that, the key was centered around, it was all about identity and who I was. And, you know, all these moves had been so destabilizing. And, but I also had always known that in between my two older brothers, my who very sadly died on the same day that she was born. And simply because there was a lack of ventilators, not ventilators, I've got that on the mind because of coronavirus, incubators, and there just, there weren't enough. And so she didn't have one. And sadly she died. So I had always known about this baby girl, but I had, I'd never really made the connection until one day I had asked my mother about her a bit more. And it suddenly dawned on me that not only was I the next girl to be born in the family and to survive, so that alone kind of put pressure on me. But she then told me, and I must have been sort of an early, a young teen, mm. that she had given me the same name that she had given this other baby girl. Mm. And for me, that was just an unbearable sort of burden to carry. And it felt like a burden. It, I felt like I was a replacement for this other child and and all my feelings until then and from then on about not feeling good enough they all sort of centered and landed on this sort of I suppose it's a bit of an identity crisis of I'm not me I'm here to replace somebody else and I'm not wanted or loved for who I am but for who someone else could never be if that makes sense Mm. And yes, yeah, so that was that was very difficult, and it rocked me to my core, and it kicked off then the following you know fifteen years of disordered eating, which came in the form of bulimia and anorexia, sort of you know on and off interweaved over the years. I sort of wandered in and out of one and into the other with periods of not necessarily fitting neatly into some of those boxes, but just with very disordered eating in general. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what what my teens and early twenties then looked like. Well, so I think it sounds incredibly tough because I think I guess you'd already kind of got that that history, hadn't you? Been you know been so conscious of like weight and shape from very young because of your mother and you know and perhaps what was going on at school and yes. and then all these comparisons. So and moving around, you know. So already you're kind of. I guess you was really kind of vulnerable with your self-worth, weren't you, and your identity. And then it's almost like this kind of bombshell is dropped almost. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Mm, yeah, and I think it's just so understandable, isn't it? It's probably almost like, it's kind of the tipping point, wasn't it? I guess where it was almost like, was the, yes. yeah, <laughs> the straw that broke the camel's back almost. It, yeah, it really was. So, I mean, it wasn't purely that, but it, as you said, you know, all the other things that had, you know, almost laid the foundation for the eating disorder and then, and then that was just that as you said that was that what really was the final straw yeah it's as often with eating disorders it's it's rarely one single thing 
but you know but a whole yeah a whole sort of series of events that, that eventually just become too overwhelming um, mm. uh, yeah well you know it, it just sounds like, i think it's so true actually it's often is quite complex isn't it and i yeah. think you just had you really had a quite a mix didn't you of so many things coming together and I'm, I'm not surprised that you really struggled. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so it sounds like as well that your family environment really did kind of have, you know, there were, there were some real challenges with that. Yeah, absolutely. My father was also a very heavy drinker. I would say he was a functioning alcoholic. Never missed a day of work, but social occasions. For me, at least, and I think to a certain extent, my brothers as well, and my mother, I can only really speak for myself here, became incredibly stressful. You know, seeing your father drunk to the point that, you know, he slurs his words and he can't walk straight. You know, it's just deeply uncomfortable. And I think I carried a lot of the shame from that. Mm. You know, whether it was us as a family in a restaurant just on our own or, you know, in a group of wider friends, it was that was very difficult. And that had been going on since I was very young. So I had sort of grown up with that. But as I said, you know, during the day, it, he was fine. He, it was only in social situations. And so we kind of lived this sort of bizarre life where I almost felt bad thinking that of him because I thought, well, you know, your character, not caricature, that's perhaps unkind, but, you know, this notion that's often portrayed in films that alcoholics, you know, they all start drinking it, you know, first thing in the morning out of a brown paper bag. That's not the case. And so, but of course, that's what's portrayed. And so when that is not what is presented to you, you think you find it hard to reconcile the two. There's a, there's a discrepancy there. And so that was confusing. I, I couldn't quite put a name to it. So that was very testing. And for all of us, I know my mother found it incredibly difficult. But also then by the time I was 17, I was, I was preparing for A-levels. And we had been living in London by then. And my parents announced that they were moving back to South America. And, and on the surface, I confess, I was slightly relieved. I thought, oh, thank goodness for that. You know, I, I can, I always felt so anxious and so stressed and this permanent pressure to perform and excel and never meeting that standard, you know, was always on me. And actually, by the time I was doing my GCSEs the year before, I was in the GP's office, you know, and being sort of officially diagnosed with, you know, with stress and anxiety. And so at 17, when they said they were going, I kind of thought, actually, do you know what? That, that is coming as a bit of a relief on one level. Mm. But deep down, I also did feel a sense of abandonment. I did think, well, they left in March and I would have finished my A-levels by what, May, June time, probably June. And I did wonder, you know, why, why couldn't they wait just, you know, a few more months and then... I could go with them or but at the time you know you sort of you're 17 you think you've got to get on with life at, you know, as I'd had had to so much previously and I just put up this wall around me and I said it's fine actually it'll be great I've got my own space and I was I was a very conscientious student I you know I knew the subjects where I really had to work hard at I knew the ones where I I was naturally good at so I was very conscientious and I didn't you know I didn't mess about but, you know, even at school, you know, one of my teachers, not one who I particularly liked, to have to say, but even she said, why have your parents abandoned you? And I remember the shock of hearing that word from another adult, because, of course, you, you don't want to think that your parents would do that. 
Mm. Um, and so I, I sort of thought, well, I know that's how I'm feeling, but I'm sure that's not what it is. And I sort of rationalized it with, you know, well, it's dad's work and they just have to go and they don't have a choice. But when I heard the teacher use that word, I kind of thought, oh, my word, it mm. is. That's exactly what it is. And actually, if I'm really honest, that's exactly how it feels of just being left behind. But in that moment, when she asked me that, I defended my parents vehemently. You know, I wasn't going to let her see, you know, how I was really feeling. And so, yeah, so they left in March and, yeah, and I was, I was left behind. That's tough, isn't it? Because I think, I think that kind of just thinking back to kind of the whole period leading up to A-levels and it is very mm. stressful, isn't it? You know, even if you're quite a conscientious student and you're good with your studies, you know, it is a time where we kind of, again, we kind of like need sort of security and support and encouragement around us, sometimes even just by the presence of people. So yeah, it sounds like a tough time. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? Like you were saying, that's quite conflicting feelings, you know, because on one mm. level, it was quite nice to perhaps just suddenly have that pressure of all the expectations taken off you. Um, yes. But then on another level, you really felt understandably abandoned. And I think it really illustrates, doesn't it? I think with so many things in life, sometimes we can feel quite conflicted in that way. Yes. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, it was it was confusing. And so when they left, I was living with my eldest brother in the flat that we had lived as a family. He had finished university. He was back in London, but he was working such long hours. I hardly saw him. And my middle brother was at the time away at university. And so I was essentially, you know, 17. And for all intents and purposes, I was living on my own. I mean, I think my brother took care of the bills pretty much. But apart from that, I was fending for myself. Now, thankfully, so we lived in, in a flat, in a block of flats, and we lived in the basement flat. And in the, on the fourth floor were my best friend and her family. And they had somehow sort of adopt family you know, even before all of this happened. So it, was, it just felt very lovely actually knowing that they were just four floors up. And, you know, should anything happen, should any crisis happen, I knew I, they were just very, very close at hand. But and they, you know, they really stepped in. And but I had already spending so much time with them. They took me away on holidays with you know, in previous years. And so they are they were very safe. And actually they were a real lifeline to me in those years. So that so that felt wonderfully reassuring mm. in that sort of, you know, really confusing time. Yeah, no, sure. Well, I mean, how wonderful actually that you had your friend and her family there. Yeah. yeah, I think lifeline is a really kind of, you know, appropriate word there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that was, um, that was very special. Yeah. So did you seek help for your eating at that point? I didn't seek help until sort of my early 20s. And I was living in Luxembourg at the time. I had, you know, as these things do, they sort of pile up and pile up. And I accepted a job in Luxembourg. You know, thinking it was you know the wise career choice to make. Deep down, I was running away from all my problems. But of course, you can't do that. And so they followed me to Luxembourg, and things sort of began to spiral out of control when I was there. And my eating was really bad, and I was drinking. My best friend's mum, the family who lived upstairs, who I had confided in several years previously, she and I was still in touch with her. She then said that she was very worried about me 
and she was going to try and help me and find a therapist in Luxembourg. Now, Luxembourg is A, a really tiny country, and B, it's a very conservative country. So trying to find a mental health expert in eating disorders was very challenging. And, and eventually she did find she did find someone. And I, so I made an appointment and I went to see the psychiatrist. And yeah, it was extraordinary. It was sort of my first exposure, if you like, an experience of therapy as an adult. And it was, well, I'll just tell you the story. I went to see him and I was in the waiting room and there were some slightly unusual magazines, you know, on the coffee table. And yeah, I went in and I sort of told him, you know, potted story of what I was feeling, what I was going through and what my life looked like and the eating. And my homework was to go and to look at porn. And he actually gave me some pornographic magazines. And he said, go and look at those. And I sort of, my jaw dropped and, and I just, I didn't, I genuinely, and I said, I'm sorry, what? And his theory was that I, I mean, it was so superficial in a way. I didn't like how I looked. This was his interpretation. I didn't like how I looked. But men liked women who were featured in these magazines, who are not your, you know, very athletic looking, thin, Mm. skinny, muscular and curvy. And therefore, that should make me feel better. That was his treatment plan. Mm. And I just walked away and I actually said to him, I said, I'm sorry, do, do you think that I'm here because I see my purpose in life as being sexually pleasing to men? And it was this sort of horrific moment, actually, that there are people out there, not least adults and professionals, who actually held that view. And despite the fact that, you know, I found, you know, pornography deeply offensive, but yeah, that was my first experience of it. And I can thought, this is not for me. And so I, mm. I took magazines and I dumped them on the coffee table that I'd been sitting at, you know, an hour earlier and never went back. It was mm. horrendous. And then, you know, fast forward, my friend's mum then became increasingly worried and actually for all intents and purposes sort of staged an intervention. And my mother came over from South America and we then moved me back to London. Mm-hmm. And, and I sought help again. And, but as many people are, tragically, I was turned away by services for not being ill enough. And you know, mm. we all know what that does to someone with eating disorders when you're told, actually, you're not, you're not sick enough to get treatment. And so I, mm. went down, I went down the private route. I thought, well, I think there's something in me that kind of knew, I know I, I really do need help. You know, yeah. My life is sort of falling apart here. And so I went down the private route. I was at the time, I was very fortunate to have private health insurance and I found a hospital. They were ready to admit me, having done all the preliminaries and all the assessments. And, and I've spoken to the insurance company twice already and they've confirmed it. The day before my admission, I had my suitcase packed, out, everything ready. And I thought, I'm just going to make one last phone call, you know, also sort of in a compulsive check. And the lady on the phone said, oh, hang on a minute. Actually, no, you're not covered. That's a long story, which I won't, I won't bore you with. But Again, I kind of felt, oh my, you know, I just felt mm. the carpet, you know, pulled out from under my feet, the rug pulled out from my feet. I thought, oh, my heart just sunk and I just had this sort of big hole. And I just thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm absolutely stuffed. I've exhausted all options. I have nowhere else to go. The NHS won't have me. I can't mm. afford private treatment, you know, on my own. 
And then I, you know, that combination just made me feel like I was a fraud. Like I thought, well, maybe I'm not really sick. Maybe I'm really sick in my head and I'm making all this up and maybe that's the problem. And I just became so confused and, and I thought, well, I can't even have a proper eating disorder. Like I'm not even doing that properly. Yeah. And I know that's, that's not unique to me. Sadly, that's, that's far too common an occurrence. And so, yeah, I was left at the crossroads of not really knowing what to do. Mm. Yeah, I think just how tough, because it, you know, it sounds like, you know, you were actually being really very proactive in trying to seek help and you were being, you know, you're willing to kind of try things, weren't you? And kind of like knocking on the door and getting turned away and then obviously getting these messages, you know, the feeling that you weren't ill enough. You know, and I just think, yeah, I'm sure many people do relate to this. And it's just so incredibly frustrating and also damaging, isn't it? Because I think, you know, we, we all know early intervention is so important. And um, yes. yeah, the longer you kind of live with an eating disorder, the harder it can be to turn things around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think by this point it was, you know, it was we were nearly, nearly hitting the 15-year mark of, mm. of, you know, disordered, eating and eating disorders you know there were there times when I did neatly tick the boxes but clearly not at the times when I was supposed to tick all the boxes to fit that diagnosis so yeah I mean it was just it, it was all a mess really yeah so what happens next you know what happened after that so you know so as I said I was at this sort of crossroads I'd exhausted all options here and all this time my mother had been you know crying out to me saying, you know, come and live in Ecuador. And I just thought, not in a million years. Because at the time, you know, I thought that my problems were, you know, the blame laid firmly at their feet, which, you know, and I've obviously recognised, you know, not entirely correct and accurate. But at the time, that was certainly what I believed. And I thought, there is no way that, how on earth is me going back to live with you under the same roof? I thought actually it would be the end of me. But I had nowhere else to go. And so I mean, I'm a Christian. And so I prayed this rather desperate prayer. And I sort of did a deal with God. And I said, look, I'm all out of options here. But if you want me to go, and if that's the right place for me, then she has to produce an airplane ticket in 24 hours. Because never thinking in a million years that would happen. But sure enough, that's exactly what happened. The next day, <laughs> she just appeared with this plane ticket. And I just thought, oh, my word. And I actually, I, I did get very fearful and I thought I just I've got to do it I have nothing else I have nothing and so I went and I packed my suitcase half of it had books I thought that's all I'm going to do I'm just going to hide in my room and I'm just going to read and read and read and read until I'm allowed back I took my bible my other half of the suitcase was divided between a quarter of it was packed full of laxatives and a quarter of it had clothes Mm, and that we would try this for three months that I would go for three months and if it wasn't working, then I could come back. And so I went and I cried every day for three months. And at the end of the three months, I said, we said three months, it's not working. I want to go back. And they said, well, you can't because your ticket expired yesterday. Mm. I just thought, how could you do? I was so shocked that they would do that and not have a conversation like, you know, a week before yeah. and, and have a grown up conversation of, well, how do you think this is going sort of thing? And I said, well, fine, I'll buy another one. And they said, well, you can't because we've cut up your credit card. 
Hmm. Which in all fairness, they were right to do. I was in debt and they had bailed me out many times. And so I did understand why they did that. But of course, my heart just sunk. I thought, I am completely at their mercy now. I have, I'm 20 something, whatever it was, and I'm trapped under the same roof with my parents and I have no way out. And I'm on the other side of the world to the place that I call home. And it, it was just, it was very frightening and confusing and I couldn't see a way out. Anyway, so I, I stayed. I mean, I had to. But mm-hmm. it was, yeah, it was incredibly difficult. But two significant things happened when I was there. One was, you know, I read my Bible a lot, having read, you know, all the other books that I had taken with me and reread some of them. Yeah. I'm with my nose in the Bible. And I felt, this might sound strange to a lot of people, but for any Christians out there, they may relate. But I felt God say to me that what I was doing with my eating disorder was that I was essentially telling him, creator of the universe, amazing Father God, that I thought that what he had created me was rubbish and that I could fashion myself a much better body. Thank you very much indeed. And I just suddenly felt, oh my goodness, I felt this sort of, how, wow, that's quite something. And I felt, Mm. I just felt so awful about that. And I thought, oh my goodness, yeah, that's, on one level, that's exactly what I'm, what I'm doing is, you know, my self-hatred of my physical body had become so extreme. And, you know, I started, you know, trying to fashion it into something that I thought was acceptable and, and nice and pretty and you know and the second that was the first thing and then the second thing that happened was that life at home with my parents was very much like hospital life from what I've heard I've never had a hospital admission for eating disorders but from what I've heard and from what I've read it sounded very similar it was very structured meal times were at a set time and I had nothing to do with the food that was being prepared and put in front of Life in Ecuador, which is where they were, is a bit like, for again, from what I hear, like life in Africa, you know, the sort of many people will have a maid or a cook. And so my parents had this lovely lady who cooked for us and I would only go into the kitchen to get a drink and, and have a chat with them. But I was not involved in any of the food preparation, which of course I had been as an independent adult. I've been doing that for myself for years or rather not as I was starving myself. but. But it very much mirrored hospital life. It was structured. I didn't have a say in what was put in front of me. I didn't know what was put in front of me. I didn't know, but I mean, I know I could tell what it was, but I had no hand in how it was being prepared. And, and, it, and one afternoon, I was just sort of, you know, pondering on life and where I was and what was happening. And, and I thought back and I realized I hadn't purged after the last meal I'd had. That's interesting. And I thought back to the meal before that and the meal before that. And it suddenly dawned on me that two weeks had gone by where I hadn't purged at all. Mm. Now, for anyone who's had an eating disorder will know that that, is, that just doesn't happen like that. You just don't mm. magically stop one day almost without realizing it. And if you manage to do it at all on your own, it is with, you know, through gritted teeth and sitting on your hands and doing whatever it takes with every ounce of willpower in your body. But it wasn't. I just hadn't done it. And I just, I saw that as, you know, a miracle. 
because there's no way I could have done that naturally. And so those two things combined kind of set in me this, just set me on a slightly different course. And I think it took me off that very self-destructive path that I would have continued to head down had I stayed in London with no help, Mm. which is the situation that I had faced previously. And yeah, so that's that that was sort of the the beginning of recovery for me. And and not not a way that I would ever have scripted it myself. Mm. Uh, It was was probably as far from what I would have imagined it to look like as it possibly could be. Yeah, sure. And it's so interesting, isn't it? And I think, you know, it sounds like your face was a really important part in helping you turn things around. And Almost, it sounds like there was perhaps a kind of moment where you suddenly saw your worth in a slightly different way. I guess, you know, you know, seeing that you've been, you know, created by God and, you know, actually that, yeah, he he valued you, I guess. Yes, Um, absolutely. Yeah. But also as well, I think just so helpful, just having that kind of structure of the regular meals, you know, and perhaps just like you said, like not knowing what was in them in a way, but, yeah. you know, but it was kind of in a way it was, I guess it was kind of, was a kind of standard routine and yeah. Um, you were, yeah. And that really, really helped. Yeah. Both of those were absolutely true. And my faith helped enormously. Having said that, you know, at the time I was clinging onto it by a thread. You know, I was, you know, for years before I'd been questioning, you know, where God had this, you know, amazing, really strong kind of fervent faith. I was hanging on by, you know, a very, very thin thread. But, you know, God mercifully showed up and, you know, worked things out in his own way. But I also definitely think that not having to think about the meals and having that structure that was in place was immensely helpful. Yeah, just knowing that it was just one less thing I had to think of. Mm. Yeah, was very, very helpful. Yeah. And then I understand, well, you finally found a helpful counsellor, did you? (laughs) I I did, essentially. Um, And yes, I found a brilliant counsellor who I trusted and felt very safe with. And so we started, but, but, this, but this came years after. So I came back from Ecuador in the autumn for, for my brother's wedding. And then I had years of kind of just living, just sort of managing. And I think, you know, as many, many people do, my eating was still somewhat disordered. I would still restrict and I would still, I mean, it wasn't extreme, but it was undoubtedly disordered and and rather chaotic for sure and but years later I eventually found and I can't remember what prompted me I I think I think I just knew that I had stuff that I hadn't dealt with and so I found this brilliant counsellor and and we were working through that was key in my recovery and but I had to try a few you know I had to try the one in Luxembourg I had to try some others and there was one in London that I tried and you know, we were sitting in from memory it was this really big room with big white walls and there was nothing else in the room except these two chairs that were spaced quite far apart I mean it was almost out of some you know 1960s you know film and I just thought this just feels really odd and I don't feel comfortable at all and it, you know, that's not an environment that's conducive to making yourself vulnerable with another person and so 
you know, you really do have to persevere to find the right therapist. And it might be the first one that you come to, and it might be the fifth one that you come to. But finding the right one was absolutely crucial to my recovery. Also, my biggest relapse was whilst I was working with that particular counsellor. And we were working through a traumatic incident. I had been raped many years before, but I hadn't told him. I told one person he was very close to me, but we never spoke about it. I almost sort of just mentioned it almost in passing, but not quite. And I sort of said briefly what happened. And then it was never spoken of again. But I sort of felt I had to tell somebody until I started working it through with, with this counsellor. And it was whilst we were doing that, that it just, it was so traumatic. And it just, I relapsed really badly into anorexia. Mm. I'd also been made redundant at the same time. So I'd lost my job and but still having bills to pay. And I was also having sort of suicidal thoughts. It, it, it was just, it was just all too much. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you were dealing with, you know, such a lot then. And mm. I think you were, you know, obviously very brave to talk openly about that trauma. <laughs> but, you know, it sounds like there were so many other things you were dealing with as well. And, you know, it sounds like it almost kind of, again, it's quite overwhelming perhaps to open that up on top of everything else. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I was processing the rape and that in itself is, you know, is huge. But I'd also lost my job. I was in debt and I just saw my life falling apart again. I was exhausted from trying. I was exhausted from just from life and everything. And I was barely functioning at this point. I remember at one point I I was sort of, you know, in my bedroom, on my bed, but, you know, catatonic, you know, rocking you know, clutching my knees and literally just rocking backwards and forwards. And my counselor then explained that that's just, it's your brain shutting down and it's going into sort of self-preservation mode because I, it did sort of scare me. I did think, oh my goodness, I mean, this is really what you see in films. And even despite having studied you know, psychology as a degree, it just rang alarm bells in me. But it was just, you know, I, my brain was in overload. And, but again, you know, my faith and my counselor and a few you know, faithful friends kind of helped, helped me through. But, you know, I was, I remember one day and, you know, during this relapse, I was waiting at the bus stop and I very nearly passed out. I mean, I sort of staggered home and my flatmate, my housemate, who was actually my best friend from still all those years before up on the fourth floor, mm. um, I was living with her and she was sort of so shocked at how ill I looked. And apparently I'd started going blue around my mouth, but I still didn't believe I was that ill. And this is kind of the dark side of anorexia and any eating disorder is that it makes you believe or it doesn't let you believe that you are ill, mm. irrespective of how close to the edge you might be. And But also news of my weight loss had somehow reached my relatives in South America. And I had phone calls from people ringing. They were congratulating me. On having mm. lost so much weight and so mm. I thought sure, this is a good thing and you know people mm. very close to me were, were beginning to get worried my housemate was worried my counselor was beginning to get worried but I but on the other hand so I you know, probably disregarded them but on the other hand I was getting phone calls from the other side of the world saying oh my goodness well done and we all know what that does to someone you know with an entrenched eating disorder and so but again I think you know with help and actually with people who 
those around me who I really knew and trusted and I knew that they knew me, there was something in me that kind of, I think, knew that they were speaking the truth and that actually these people from the other side of the world, they didn't know me really. They didn't know my circumstances. They didn't know who I was. I mean, as a person, obviously they knew who I was. They were relatives, but you know, they didn't know me emotionally. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I kind of, I chose to listen to those close to me, but I was, and so I got better on my own actually, because I was, I was so scared of being admitted to hospital. You know, I had heard you know, all sorts of stories and I thought, no, I'll do anything, but, but I'm not going anywhere near a hospital this time. I think I was also scared having been rejected twice before, you know, from private and NHS services. I can thought, I'm not going down that road. I'll do this on my own. And, you know, by the grace of God and with this brilliant counsellor, I was able to do that. But yeah, but that, those were very dark days, but absolutely necessary. And I think if I hadn't, if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be in the place of freedom that I am now. Yeah. Yeah. And so based on your experience, is there any advice that you would give to someone else who's listening, maybe who's experienced some trauma and maybe they're feeling unsure about, you know, whether they should deal with this or not? Absolutely. And I would encourage and I would more than that, I would deeply urge people to deal with it and to stop burying any sort of trauma that that they might have experienced because at some point it will leak into other areas of life and it makes it all the harder and adds to the complexity of what is already a very difficult uh, thing and also um, unless it's dealt with you know I think we all know this but just to reiterate that unless it, it is dealt with we will most likely jump from one unhealthy coping mechanism to another or from one addiction to another because the the root of the problem is still there. Mm. It's, you know, unless we actually address it, all we're really doing is a sticking plaster and they eventually fall off. And I would also say to really persevere in finding the right therapist for you. And that might not be the same person that helped your friend or helped anyone else. And it might not be the first person that you see. You know, it takes a while to find someone that you feel, or it may take a while. You know, some people are lucky and and the first one they come to is is brilliant. And there are many, 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 you know, brilliant people working out there, helping people with trauma and addictions and eating disorders. But, But just to not be surprised that you may have to knock on a few doors before finding the right person that you feel safe with. And and I think often you will know quite soon after meeting that person, whether it's going to work as a a therapeutic relationship. And yeah, and again, unless those underlying issues are dealt with, you're just unlikely to be free, to be truly free from eating disorders. You can, I mean, you know, as I did for many years and, and many people do, you can live with an eating disorder or an addiction for a very long time. You can manage, but mm. there is so much more to life than just coping, than just managing, than just sort of stumbling through, you know, semi-functioning. Life can be amazing again. And that, that's one of my most passionate messages that I want to, you know, get out there is that, you know, this notion of, and you hear it a lot of an alcoholism or addiction, but increasingly I'm seeing it in, you know, in the world of eating disorders that 
people say, well, you know, this is just something I'm always going to have to manage. I'm always going to have to live with. And I just want to say, no, it, that's not necessarily, you know, you can be truly and totally free from an mm. eating disorder where you don't calorie count, where you don't think about your meals, where you eat what you want because you want it when you want it. You know, if you're not hungry for lunch at 12, but you have it at three, brilliant. If you're hungry at 12 and you're not, you know, then have lunch. It's just a freedom that I never knew was possible. I was one of those that I thought, this is just something I'm going to always have to manage or, you know, factor into my life. But yeah, that's, that's not the case. Mm. Well, that's such a powerful and inspiring message. <laughs> so Carolina, can I ask you as well, where can people find you if they want to know more about the, the great work that you're doing? Oh, thank you. They can find me on all sort of social media platforms at Carolina Mountford. The only difference is Twitter, it's because my name is too long. It's Carolina Mount Fo, just the F-O. But yeah, social media platforms. I'm in the process of setting up my website, so that's not quite ready yet. And LinkedIn, I've only recently joined LinkedIn. I'm not sure how easy it is to find me on there, but I am there. But but social media platforms, I'm active on on all of them. My Instagram account is currently private because I've been receiving lots of sort of rather dodgy images and messages but if people send me just a private message saying that they've you know heard me on, on your podcast then that sort of helps me to, to place people but yeah uh, twitter instagram facebook i'm there okay lovely okay brilliant well i'm, I'm sure that you know there are going to be several people that listen to this and really resonate so may well be in touch yeah um, well i mean yeah i'd love to be in touch with, with people that that's fantastic Okay. Well, I just want to really thank you again, Carolina. You know, I really appreciate you coming on and, you know, sharing your story so openly because I think it's just, it's so valuable. And, you know, I think, and I know definitely, you know, listening to you, I feel so much kind of hope and encouragement and, you know, it just really reignites my sort of passion and enthusiasm for working with people and just oh, really brilliant. kind of yeah it's, it's affirming really that recovery is possible and yeah. and, that, and that genuine sort of you know authentic kind of real freedom with food yeah um yeah. so so thank you so much oh well great well, thank you so much for having me it's been lovely talking to you okay thank you so thanks again so much carolina for coming on the podcast today and sharing so openly we really appreciate it So for anyone who's not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the Food Freedom Coach. And for regular tips and insights into overcoming disordered eating, do sign up for my weekly articles on my blog page at foodfreedomcoach.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm